The following presentation is brought to you by the Kyogle Writers Festival 2021. The Kyogle Writers Festival would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this work was created, the gullible people of the Bunjalung Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming today, I uh, really appreciate it. Um, just before we kick off, just want to pay our respects to the Bunjalung people who are the traditional owners of this country and uh, pay our respects to Elders past and present. Um, and also want to acknowledge any First Nations people today. Um, my name is Caitlin Sori. this is Frank Lopez. Um, we have a production house together, KNF Media. And we're here with, of course, Melissa Lukashenko, who's an acclaimed um, Guri writer who's uh, won a bunch of awards. Uh, the Miles Franklin Award, the Walkley Award, many, many other awards. Uh, she's also the uh, author of Too Much Lip, this book here, and uh, recently headlined Sydney Writers' Festival, and she's just come from Brisbane Writers' Festival and is now joining us at Kyogle Writers' Festival. With my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Melissa, for coming. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Caitlin. It's, it's really good to be here on Gullible land, and I, I pay my respects to the Gullible community and elders uh, as a Bundjalung person from east of here. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you became a writer? What got you in? Um, I think I applied it through a job ad. No, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did I become a writer? Well, like a lot of teenagers, I wrote terrible angst-ridden poetry at 18 and 19. Um, and I had a fair bit to be angst-ridden about. At that time, I was in a violent relationship in Logan City with a, a much older man. Uh, but I, I ended up at uni, I ended up at Griffith, and the, the teachers at Griffith taught me how to uh, write clearly, how to put sentences together. And uh, I was supposed to be doing, um, I was supposed to be studying economics and business, but my interests just took me to fiction, you know, Australian mm. fiction and poetry and American fiction and, you know, First Nations fiction. And, mm. Yeah, so what... Um, what could have been a, a thesis on uh, Aboriginal education turned into my first book, Steam Pigs, in 1997. So that's how you start a book. Mm, mm. <laughs> Get into uni. Um, what were some of the Aboriginal and, and First Nations writers who really got you excited about writing? Well, there wasn't... It was very different back then in the late 80s, early 90s to now when, you know, there's a, a plethora of... Uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Island, Māori, Pacifica, Native American writers to, to draw upon. Uh, early on, um, the writers like Ujuru and Lisa Blair, um, Sam Watson Senior, they were influential, but the book that made all the difference for me was The Bone People um, by Kerry Hume, the Māori writer, who won the booker in, I think, 85 with that. And that was the first inkling I had that you could write uh, indigenous, in, an indigenous voice about indigenous people and still um, have it seen as, you know, a really top-rate literary fiction. Mm. Uh, and ever since then, I've been trying to balance that in my writing. I've been trying to write black stories based in country, based in community, talking about our real lives and reach a, an audience that's interested in literary fiction and, and Australian fiction generally. Mm. And I, I didn't think I could do it. I thought uh, Too Much Lip would not 
um, I thought I'd get a lot of uh, pushback on the novel. I expected really? to be attacked by lots of people for writing it. Uh, and I <laughs> certainly didn't expect to win the Miles Franklin. <laughs> but then about two weeks after... Oh, let me see. About two weeks after I got the prize, um, Danny T.J. Johnson, who is getting around the festival, I think, somewhere, uh, who's a Gumroy journalist and writer. Um, Danny was doing the uh, live broadcast of the, um, the Black Footy, the knockout carnival, and uh, I must have made a comment on the live feed on Facebook, and he goes, oh, there's Melissa Gurry. That's my Facebook now. You know, one of our deadly black writers, and I thought, well, fuck me, if I could win the Miles Franklin and get a shout-out on the on the Aboriginal footy knockout show, then I'm doing all right. <laughs> that's, I've, I've done what I thought I could never actually do. Oh, that's great. <laughs> what made you think you'd get pushback from this book? Oh, it's it's not... Um, <laughs> it's, it's a warts and all kind of portrayal of modern Australia and modern Aboriginal life, you know, it's... It's talking about the trauma, and it's uh, it's a book that anticipated me too. Uh, I was terrified during the writing of it for two years. I was frightened every single day, but every time I felt like I can't do it, I can't write this stuff without adding to the demonising of Aboriginal men and Aboriginal communities that is being used as a racist tool. Every time I thought that, someone would come to me just coincidentally with a story of what had happened to her or what had happened in their family. And I thought, okay, I've got to keep going. I'm going to get, I'm going to get ripped severely, but I've got to do it. It's my responsibility to do it. Mm. And lo and behold, um, it was the right moment for the book. Mm. Yeah. I heard in an interview you said that um, you interviewed um, the lady that uh, wrote The Colour Purple about yeah, Alice Walker. Yeah, Alice yeah. Walker. And um, she said something about how writers often write the same things over and over again. You went back and read her first book and that was part of the inspiration for Too Much Lip. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, it was actually me um, saying that writers often write the one book in many guises and that's that's not original to me. That's a, right. a common idea or a trope. Mm. Um and yeah, like the colour purple is massive international bestseller, very much ahead of its time in, in what um, Alice Walker talked about in it. But I thought because you know she's a, a huge icon of of Black American and just American fiction, so I thought to do it justice, I'll go back and read her first novel. And there's a lot of similarities with the colour purple. Um, and now I've forgotten the original question. <laughs> Sorry, I guess it's, why? It's been a why long would, that's okay. Mm. I mean, I guess why was um, what made reading that book like? How did that kind oh, of how trigger? Did that influence? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just felt like she had blazed the trail in a way that she'd shown me how to write a family saga that looked at um, intergenerational trauma in a poor black family in, in where she's from. She's from Georgia. Right, hugely racist um, time, place at the time she was growing up, and maybe still. She said she was so frightened uh, during and before the civil rights era in Georgia that she didn't even want to fly over it once she left. It was it was so um, terrifying to her the 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 racist violence that you know people were were being killed and threatened with being killed for voting. Mm. Okay. Um, mm. 
so at the very pointy edge of race relations in the States. Mm. So I felt like if someone with her status uh, in black writing could talk about what she talks about there, that I could um, take my lead from her and, and do the same in Australia. Mm. There's a lot of humour in there, though. Like, how, like, why is that important to bring that into something like trauma? Yes, life is funny. Like, life is hilarious. Uh, that, that's the short answer. So, um, I don't know any black fellas that go around like full of doom and gloom, never laughing. Uh, I'm sure they exist, but they're not the people that I know and am related to. We laugh all the time. But also, as, a, as an artistic project, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a story, it's a yarn, and I want people to enjoy themselves when they read my books. You know, it's, there's enough bloody misery in the world without adding to it, um, mm. producing some kind of misery guts novel. You know, let's all have a laugh, even if we've got to talk about hard stuff. Mm. You know, I can find the, find the funny while we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and not adding to the trauma. Yeah, I, I always say um, when I write my characters, I want them to have four things. I want them to have beauty, I want them to have power, I want them to have humour and I want them to have land because those are the things that, you know, colonisation tried to strip away from us mm. and say, you can't be beautiful people, you know, You're you can't enjoy life. life, your life will be a misery because that's what, you know, your, your lot in life is to be, mm. you know, and you certainly can't have power and we, we'll take the land, thank you very much. So I try to give all my characters, restore that to my characters. Mm. And lately I've added love to that list. Mm. Yeah, land is a really interesting theme in this book and it often references the land around here, which is kind of great for you to be at Kyogle for this festival. Oh, there's a very brief mention of Kyogle, but mm. it's, it's set in a... Um, a non-specified part of Bundjalung country, mm. yeah. Mm. And the town of Durongo, uh, it draws on a few different towns. It draws on Billy Nudgel, it draws on Boona, it draws on uh, Bay Desert to a very small extent. Um, it draws on Burringbar a little bit. Mm. But yeah, all these different places that I'm familiar with have fed into the yeah. fictional town of Durongo. Is there a reason you chose to make it a fictional town? Uh, yeah, because of the content, because um, what non-Aboriginal writers don't realise, whenever you write an Aboriginal or a pseudo-Aboriginal story, you're writing about a place with actual living Aboriginal families in it. Okay, so um, if I'd set it in a, if I'd set it in Kyogle, if I'd set it in Mullumbimby, if I'd set it in Burringbar, then the actual Aboriginal families who continue to live in those places would have been, you know, identified as the family in the book by our community and maybe by others. And that's not what I wanted to do. Mm. It's not like setting something in a capital city, you know, it's because if, you, if you're writing a book in a place where there's three or four Aboriginal families, it's, mm. you know, you're basically slandering those families or writing about those families without their permission. Mm. Even if you say it's fictional, it's still got implications that it's yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and there's been white writers have done that and, and caused great harm because they don't realise what they're doing. Mm. You know, they don't know what they don't know. Mm. I mean, 
how does the the landscape affect what you're writing? Like where you're writing it, does it affect what you write? Um, well, when I write, I go in my imagination to the place that I'm writing about. Um, the American writer David Van, uh, who's of Native American background, he uh, he told me a few years ago that he he'll write in somewhere as different as you can possibly find to the place that he's writing about. So his work is set in uh, a particular part of North America, the north of North America, but I can't remember where. But he goes and writes in hotels in Thailand, things like that. It's, I think in order to break break the connection and make it completely different. Mm. I mean, because I'm Aboriginal, land is central to everything in my life. Mm. And that goes for writing as, as much as anything else it can. You know, for us, um, country is story. It's, it's the same thing. Story, I mean, you look at this beautiful tapestry behind us, not tapestry, needlework. Absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's, I think it's Lismore, look at the river, look at the parrots, look at the galahs, look at the trees. And it's absolutely sensationally beautiful work. But there's not one skerrick of Aboriginal presence in that. Mm. You know, it may as well be called terra nullius. Mm. Nothing, absolutely nothing. This is the story of Australia, a beautiful, rich landscape that we, you know, say we love and we enjoy living in and there's no blackfellas anywhere. Nothing at all. And that's, that's how their understanding of country has informed that work. My understanding of country is saturated with Aboriginal meaning. Mm. And that, of course that flows through into my writing. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you kind of talked a little bit earlier about how, like, there's a lot more Aboriginal mm. writers now. Like, a lot more First Nations writers. Yeah, now. a lot more First Nation writers. Um, and, you know, some of the damage that white writers have done when talking about Aboriginal stories. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what does the representation of First Nation writers mean for that kind of storytelling and it means we're clawing back some ground and being able to tell stories that are actually indigenous to here and not what a white person's idea of indigenous is mm. you know they're two different things mm. there's this question that gets posed um, who can write aboriginal stories as though it's a, a binary thing and it's about permission it's not mm. if you're not aboriginal you cannot write an aboriginal story by default because you don't have the insight, you know, unless you've married into an Aboriginal family and have known the community for decades, mm. all you're writing is a false representation of what you've received through a racist culture. Mm. Hey. Um, so the, the fact that we've now got Ellen Van Nieven and we've got Michaela Saunders and we've got um, so many people uh, I'm a bit brain dead from doing three festivals in three weeks. But <laughs> Adam Thompson, you know, um, we've got Nardi Simpson, we've, we've got so many voices. Uh, you know, Janine Lee and Tony Birch, you name it, out there and telling stories. It's, uh, I don't think the tide has turned, but maybe we're at, we're at high tide and, and it's that period where the tide is still. You know, and there's a chance that uh, country can be begin to be understood um, as we've seen it for so long. Mm. 
What does that kind of exposure do for future generations, even of indigenous people who, who don't even want to be artists, mm. you know, just want to be regular people? What, is that, what do you think that gives them? Um, I think it gives oxygen. I was, I was on stage with Lisa Fuller, who's an um, Aboriginal young adult writer from central Queensland. She's not young adult, she's in her 40s, but she's written um, a beautiful and prize-winning uh, young adult novel called Ghostbird. And she was talking about um, when she was in uh, primary school, some incident of racism, and I'm, because I'm brain dead, I'm just struggling to remember what it was. But, you know, she went to school at a time... Oh, that's right, the teacher wanted her IQ tested because she, she didn't communicate in the way that the teacher found acceptable or could understand. So she wanted to take Lisa off, have her IQ tested to see if she belonged in that classroom. This is Lisa who's just won an important <coughs> national award for her young adult novel and I think is finishing a PhD. And Lisa didn't have Aboriginal titles at school, you know. She, was, she was, wasn't given any kind of literature that reflected herself back to her. Um, and an American writer whose name I can't think of at the moment said, if you want to make people monsters, deny them images of themselves. You know, if you want to turn people into monsters, make sure they can't see themselves clearly. And that's what's been done to us for so long. Mm. But, uh, and it's not just about us as being deprived, it's also about Australia as being deprived. You know, the bushfires, it's just one example. If Australia had the maturity to accept Aboriginal fire knowledge, the bushfires wouldn't have happened. And they can be prevented from happening again. But this idea that anything Aboriginal has to be inferior, anything Aboriginal has to be damaged and destroyed or denigrated, you know, we, we, we're writing against that tide um, of history. Hmm. Well, you don't have to reconcile with something you don't see as real. Well, this is true. Yeah, hmm. this is true. So in terms of your writing process, when you're coming up with characters, like how much of your experiences, your people you love, people you know, are kind of feed into those characters? Oh, it's all true. You'll be in my next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, most of my characters are composites of about three or four people. Mm. Yeah, there's usually, that's a good mix for me, mm. three to four, because... Uh, I never lift people holes, bowlers. It's 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 not creation. Then it's just kind of some kind of weird appropriation. Mm. Yeah. Imagine that would get a bit awkward too. People be like, um, "That's me." Oh, people <laughs> people are forever recognising themselves <laughs> in my work. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, um, whether they're there or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People like to see themselves <laughs> in my books. Uh, are you one of those people in that mm. composite? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm. Yeah, all the time. But I wrote a piece for Griffith Review on, um, I think it was the piece that won the Walkley actually, Sinking Below Sight, and it was about poverty in Brisbane and Logan, mm. poverty of single mothers. And I wrote these quite heartbreaking stories of you know, women struggling to put food on the table and to keep a roof over their kids' heads and where they'd come from and how they'd ended up in that situation. Uh, and 
it hit a nerve with lots of people. It won the Walkley Award. And the Griffith Tribune got this letter from Adelaide saying, I know that you're writing about me. And, you know, I'm very... It's like, Adelaide, Christ. <laughs> you know, I've never been to Adelaide for more than a night in my life. <laughs> so, yeah, people, people read the books that they want to read. They see what they want to see a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how long does it take you to start mapping out a new novel? Like, Oh, how long's a piece of string? Yeah. Uh, as I was saying in the last session, the book that I'm writing at the moment, my a colonial historical novel of Brisbane, uh, I've been thinking about it for 20 years. I wrote a young adult novel in six weeks once, Killing Darcy. That was when I first landed in Tonga and I was in a bit of culture shock and I just went to the computer and started typing and six weeks later I had a young adult novel. Um, yeah, usually between one and two years. When you're younger, but as you get older, you yeah, you write in a different way. Most people do. I mm. certainly do. Mm. Mm. And I'm a great believer in slowness as a life uh, motif anyway. Mm. You know, yinyamara. Yinyamara is uh, the Wiradjuri term. People heard that? No. Yinyamara. Yinyamara. Um, the Bundjalung equivalent is uh, Garamamalela. Um, but the Wiradjuri people say that Yindyamara is a uh, it's an underpinning philosophy of life and it means to do gently to do slowly and to do lawfully and to, to live well in a to live respectfully in a world worth living in oh, it's much broader than mindfulness yeah. um, so Operating slowly is a, a big part of that. So I write slowly. Mm. You know, it's you can't hurry something. You can't make a tree grow any faster than it wants to grow. Mm. You can't make flowers and fruit appear when it's not the right time. And to force a book, I think, is um, a mistake. Mm. Mm. Have you learned that by experience, or that's just been something you've always practiced? Um, it's something that's grown in me over the years. You know, as you. I practiced Zen Buddhism for, for quite some time and, and that practice of sitting still certainly um, reverberates in me. Mm. Um, I mean, the more you know, the more the more you realise how ignorant you are. I suppose it's to do with that too. Mm. Uh, and the more cautiously you, you step into any argument or into any piece of work, into any endeavour, mm. And it's, it's to do with the role of the ego too, but there's a different conversation. Mm. That fear you felt when you were writing this book, I'll get out in a sec. Yeah. Um, do you, have you kind of moved, do you think that you've, that courage from that process means that going into your next project, you're not as fearful or you, it's, it's still there? Um, yeah, it... It's what I realise is that um, lots of people were afraid, not just me. Mm. And you know, when you when you decide to put your head above the parapet, if you don't get shot down, then other people will join you. Mm. And it, uh, other people were, were writing towards that place at the same time as me, but I, I wasn't necessarily aware of it. Mm. 
Well, Melissa Lukashenko, we really appreciate you taking the time for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a presentation of the Kyogre Writers Festival 2021. Head over to our website, kyogrewritersfestival.com, for upcoming events, how to become involved, and details on next year's festival.